Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. Uh, welcome if you're here in the church itself. Welcome if you're online. And uh, welcome if you're, especially if you're a visitor with us today. It's lovely to have you with us. And thank you for being a part of this service. We're here to worship God. We're here to sing his praises. We're here to pray to him, to read his word. And later on this morning, uh, Duncan, our pastor, will be opening up a passage from Acts 13 as we look at how that early church went out and proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. Good morning. Acts 13, verses 1 to 12. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Amen. And let me add to Adrian's welcome. It's lovely to worship the Lord together and to hear from him in his words and particularly in this book of Acts where we're hearing of the early church and their priorities and the way they went about life. And it's raised a question in my mind, and it's to ask, when, when has a church arrived? When has a church arrived? I mean, when can a church finally fully exhale and just thank the Lord that we've reached our destination? I mean, take this church as an example. Um, surely, we're a success story. More than 20 years ago now, a group of folks who'd been meeting in this area for Bible study took the bold step to start meeting on Sunday mornings in a local primary school. Things started small, but by God's grace, the work grew. 
Many people became Christians in those early years. And in 2011, the church moved into this excellent facility that we're enjoying today. Got a nice crowd comes together, people of all ages. Surely we've made it. It's all paid off. Solid crowds. We can truly say we are a, we are a well-established church. What a success story. Nope, nope, nope. God forbid that we would ever think of the church in those terms. The church most certainly has not arrived. The time to exhale because we have reached our destination most certainly has not yet come. And in fact, if any church thinks that it has arrived, then it has not really grasped what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. In our passage today in Acts 13, we read about the church in a place called Antioch. It had small beginnings. A handful of people had journeyed the, what, 300 miles from Jerusalem to Antioch. And as they got there, they shared the message about Jesus and people became Christians. And the church grew. And in fact, it became so big that they were able to send practical support 300 miles back down the road to Jerusalem to help them through a period of famine. And we start into this chapter, verse 1, and we see that they have a diverse and a gifted leadership. Looking at the list of people there, I'm sure their sermons on Sundays were great. They had arrived, hadn't they? They were a success story. A good-going church in a big city doing good work, well-ordered, blessed by God. No. What we see in this chapter is that this church has not arrived. They don't stop there. What we're seeing in this chapter is, is the church that won't sit still. They don't think they've arrived, however blessed they might be. They're the church that won't sit still. We start with an introduction to the church's leadership, first verse. Five men are particularly identified for us. They are prophets and teachers. They, in other words, they've been gifted by the Lord in these ways to serve the church. And even in these five men, we're given a, something of a snapshot of what the church is. It is a place where a diversity of people are joined together because they share this one thing in common. They believe in Jesus Christ. So, Barnabas's name comes up again. We've met him a few times already in the book of Acts. He's the encouraging guy who was originally from Cyprus. Simeon is mentioned, who is almost certainly black from Africa. Lucius is from Libya. Manaean has these connections um, with Herod the Tetrarch. The ESV says a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. If you have the, the NIV, it says something like he was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, which may be the sense of it here. Um, Herod the Tetrarch was the guy who had John the Baptist's head cut off, the guy who Jesus stood before at the time of his trial. And here you've got this amazing thing, haven't you? The gospel reaches someone who grew up in this important family and saves him 
and yet seems to harden this other one who was there. And then there's Saul, the devout Jew, converted on the road to Damascus. Now, don't forget this church has come a long way. They seem established now. But what they're doing in verse 2 tells us so much about their mindset. Because here we find a church listening to the Lord. They are a church that is listening to the Lord. And we see that with what's being said here. They are, verse 2, they're worshiping the Lord and fasting. Now, I suppose we expect the church to worship the Lord. That's what we come here to do on Sunday mornings. We're here to worship God. But fasting? So, just to be clear, fasting is the deliberate foregoing of food and perhaps even water for a period of time, but with a spiritual purpose. So, this is different from someone doing a hunger strike. This is someone deliberately foregoing food for a spiritual purpose. For example, in the Old Testament, you would read of Ezra. He calls the people of Israel to fast, and this is how he explains it, that we might humble ourselves before our God. This is the idea behind this this discipline that we read of here, to draw nearer to God. And very often in the Bible, fasting is associated with prayer. Prayer is that sense of us coming before God, trusting Him, depending upon Him, seeking Him, and fasting is another way of simply intensifying those things, isn't it? We're expressing how much we need the Lord, an expression of how we long for the Lord more than even for our daily food. Maybe that's a helpful way to think of what's going on here. Because you see, the church in Antioch is not content to just sit where it is. They're seeking the Lord. They want more of Him. They want to know Him better. They want to know what He wants them to do. And it's not surprising that as the church draws near to God, that they discover God's heart. God has a heart for mission. This is what they find out as they draw nearer to Him. They hear God speak. The Holy Spirit says to them, verse 2, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Presumably, though we're not given the details here, presumably one of these prophets delivered this message from the Lord to the church. But I doubt, I doubt it was an audible voice from heaven. No, we have the sense here surely that The Spirit prompts the the church as they're drawing near to Him. They sense what God wants them to do. It's, It's as they depend upon God, God aligns their hearts with His. It's not so much in this time of fasting and prayer that they get God to do what they want, but actually God changes them. Their hearts are brought into line with His hearts. And so you can imagine, can't you? The prophets are there, and they would say, well, we know. We know that Saul has been called by Jesus to take the gospel to non-Jewish people, and we know that we have been called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, 
And we know that Saul and Barnabas together are gifted teachers. God has used them to build up our church in Antioch. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is telling us to send them on to continue that work in new places. You can almost imagine it, can't you? Whatever the specifics, the church is left in no doubt what they should do. But you see that this dependence upon the Lord is no, no mere flash in the pan. Look what they do in verse 3 that's made clear to them what to do. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They don't treat the Lord like some kind of crystal ball to reveal the future to them. No, there's a genuineness to their dependence upon Him. It's not a case of the saying, well, God's answered that question for us now, we can all get back to normal. No, they realize they depend upon the Lord every step of the way. And so the church engages in a time of fasting again and praying for the mission that lies ahead. And they lay their hands on these two church leaders, these two gifted church leaders who they're willing to send off to serve somewhere else. And this laying on of hands is not some kind of anointing to a special office, but is a, is a sign of their oneness with them. We're with you. We are one with you. But what the church does here in Antioch is precisely what churches forget to do when they get comfortable, when they think they've arrived. They don't spend their time fasting and praying because, well, we're already here. Where else would we need to go? Our success, our stability, our spiritual fruitfulness, folks, it does not rest on numbers. It does not rest on finances. It does not rest on gifted personnel. It rests on the Lord above all of those things. And it's hard not to to want to draw these principles from the Church of Antioch into our own situation here in Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. We are looking forward to a season of focused mission next month. And we've drawn up some plans that we think could serve as good avenues for sharing the gospel. On the 12th of April, we'll, God willing, start a holiday Bible club, primary school-aged kids, plan to run a season of family services on the back of that, 17th, 24th, 1st of May. Plan to have a family social night, Saturday the 23rd of April. Have an encounter service on Sunday the 24th. A men's meal night, an apologetics evening, Easter friendship lunch, little blessings afternoon tea. There's a women's morning being organized for early May. Now, in all of these things, where will spiritual fruit come? Unless, along with a plan of action, we have a people who are praying. Unless we are, along with that, drawing near to the Lord and seeking Him, then let's be honest, we're going on our own strength. We're trying to build a church by human endeavor, by clever thinking, more than we are by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And so I want to urge you today, especially if you're part of this church, to take these events that we've mentioned and to consider people who you might invite to events like that and pray and pray and pray. But more than that, I think there is a responsibility on us together as a church family for this mission that we see ourselves embarking on to seek the Lord together as a church family. And so in the last two weeks of this month, on those uh, evenings that we would normally hold Bible study groups, we're going to meet for prayer here in the church, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays. And not with the view that you should feel you have to attend all of those meetings, but to give us the opportunity to reach us all, that we might pray together for this mission. And you're all wondering if I'm going to completely ignore fasting, aren't you? I don't think we can. I don't think we can. And it's, so it's likely that uh, we'll set aside a day where we'll suggest, if you're able, and some people have very good reasons why they're not able to, that we could, as a church, fast for 24 hours. And in the times when we would have been eating, we'll pray. And we'll seek the Lord and ask Him to bring spiritual fruit and glorify His name. Look out for details on that next week. The church fasted and prayed and sent Saul and Barnabas on their way on this new mission. And I love the detail here of verse 3. It's the church that sent them off. You see that? And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. But at the same time, verse 4, they were being sent out by the Holy Spirit. There's no contradiction here. This is, what the Holy Spirit, this is how the Holy Spirit works to send people out on mission in this way. He uses the church. Anyway, this new mission is going to take the missionaries to Cyprus. And uh, I have some friends who moved to Cyprus to be missionaries last year. Lovely place to go on mission, I suppose. Uh, Carl is going to show us the root of this mission on the screen just briefly. Because for us, I suppose, these might just be a list of places. You see Antioch over there on the right-hand side of the screen. They travel to the nearby port of Seleucia. And they get on a ship. They arrive at Salamis on the east side of Cyprus. And uh, they conduct their mission all the way across, east to west, to Paphos, and next week we'll pick up on when they leave Cyprus. That gives you an idea of what they're doing. And I suppose when we see that picture, we think, oh, it was just a wee jaunt across the water. But I mean, bear in mind, uh, we're talking nearly two millennia ago, a hundred miles into the Mediterranean on a, on a ship. There's no engines. There's a big deal for them to do this. It's a big move, no small task. Thank you, Carl. This isn't, this isn't the first time that the message has come to Cyprus. Back in chapter 11, we read of some Christians who were scattered because of persecution. Some of them ended up as far as Cyprus. And perhaps on the back of reports that had come back from Cyprus, along with the fact that Barnabas, one of the church leaders, was from Cyprus. 
that it seemed like a good place to start. But what is it that they do when they get there? We see pretty quickly that this was a new mission, but it had familiar patterns. It's a new mission with familiar patterns. Let me show you some of those patterns. The first one is this. They preach the word. I mean, that's left unambiguous for us. That's what they did in Cyprus. You see that in verse 5. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God. Again, in verse 7, the the proconsul summons them so that he might hear the word of God. And at the end of our section, verse 12, he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is what these missionaries did. This is what characterizes the mission of Jesus Christ through His church. I mean, we've seen it time and time again through the first 12 chapters of this book, and it's not changed, and it's not going to change. The mission of Jesus is found in the message about Jesus. And it must be. It must be. I mean, just just think about this. All of the, the toil and struggle for these guys and the risks involved in catching a ship traveling 100 miles out to sea over to Cyprus. Can you imagine if they'd gone there and done all sorts of helpful things? Maybe they'd got involved in a construction project or whatever, but they never told them about Jesus? That would be bizarre, wouldn't it? I mean, what would be, I mean, just think about it. What's the best thing you could think they could do? I mean, these are, these are gifted guys. The power of the Holy Spirit is with them. What if they'd gone there on a healing spree, cured people of illnesses? Maybe they'd tackled the problem with the water supply and they dug a lot of wells. I mean, these are things that would leave their mark on the people of Cyprus for sure. But imagine doing all of that and never telling them about Jesus Christ. It would be the most tragic mission of all. These guys, Saul and Barnabas, and we see that John, who's also called Mark, he goes with them as well. They carry with them the greatest news ever. God has sent His Son into the world to rescue us from our sins so that we might know Him and have everlasting life with Him. Though we are rebellious against God and deserve only His judgment, Jesus has come and He's died in the place of sinners to free you from the judgment of God and to bless you beyond what you could ever imagine. And you can be sure of that because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And so anyone, whether you're a Jew or a non-Jew, if they turn to Jesus Christ and believe in Him, follow Him, then you'll be forgiven. You'll have God living in you by His Spirit, and you'll have everlasting life of joy and peace with Him. Now imagine not telling them that. It's sad to say that that has become the norm for many missions, both at home and abroad. It's sad to say that that's become the tragic norm for the mission of many churches. There is no lack of zeal to plead about important things like the latest social justice issue or the severity of the climate crisis, important things. 
but to not have a word to say about the greatest news of all. Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. No, what we see time and time again in the mission of the early church is that the mission of the church is to proclaim the message about Jesus Christ because it is the most urgent matter of all. It's a message about Jesus. But you see here that for these missionaries, it is proclaimed where they have a clear opportunity. It's no accident that the approach of the missionaries here and throughout the rest of the book was to preach, first of all, in the Jewish synagogues. So a synagogue is, I guess, to put it simply, a church for Jews. And you see that in verse 5. That's what their approach was. They proclaimed the Word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. There was a theological reason for doing that, namely that salvation was first offered to the Jews as Jesus came to the Jewish people and the church started among the Jewish people. But there was a pragmatic reason as well. This is where they could speak to a crowd. This is where they had an open door to speak about the Lord. And it wasn't only Jews who gathered in the synagogues. It was uh, what the Bible calls God-fearing non-Jews who would gather there as well. This was their inn. And there's nothing wrong. And in fact, there is everything right about honestly evaluating where the opportunities lie for the gospel. I fear so often we, we spend so much energy wondering how we can get in somewhere where we have no opportunity that we almost forget the many open doors that there are for us. And how right for each of us to, to weigh that up honestly. Where do I have an in to speak about Jesus? Where do I have that opportunity? Who do I have that connection to? That's where to start. That's where to start. Well, the stir that no doubt was caused in these synagogues along their way to western Cyprus caused the proconsul, verse 7, that is the Roman appointed overseer of this land, a man named Sergius Paulus. He calls for these missionaries because he wants to hear the Word of God. That's how it's put in verse 7. And as much as this was an exciting development, there's another familiar pattern here, the familiar pattern of opposition to the gospel. New mission, familiar pattern, opposition to the gospel. Cyprus was no exception. There were those who hated the followers of Jesus because they could see that the Savior whom they spoke about was a threat. And that's precisely the case here with the magician who shows up in Cyprus. You see, he's called a magician, verse 6 and verse 8. Luke tells us he was a Jewish false prophet. He has this Jewish name, Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus or son of Joshua. But he goes by this other name, Elymas, which means wise one. And hence, he gets called magician or sorcerer, depending on your translation. And here we have this scene where Elymas is whispering in the proconsul's ear, oh, sir, you mustn't have anything to do with these people. This is, this is the same crowd who, who, who caused all that commotion in Jerusalem that we heard about the other day, remember? You know, they're, they're turning people away from worshiping Caesar. And I've heard that they they drink blood in their worship services. Send them away, sir. Don't, don't, don't even listen to them. 
Now, of course, Elymas is worried about what will happen to his privileged position with the king. If the proconsul embraces Jesus, if he feeds on the Word of God, then this wise one don't look so wise no more. The world has not changed. It is not enough for some to simply say, no, I don't believe. There is so often an activism that has this counter mission to prevent anyone from embracing the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I would suggest Elymas might be a a forerunner of our modern-day cancel culture. Don't listen to what those Christians say. You know they're bigots, right? They're anti-science. They're all hypocrites. Don't even listen to them. We can't bear to hear them. Now, let's be honest. No one wants to be given those kind of labels. No one wants to be spoken about in that kind of way. But we do know, don't we, that this sort of opposition to the message about Jesus is still very real today. And much of the time, it's that opposition that holds us back from speaking. Now, these missionaries knew that that's what lay ahead for them. I mean, they've already known far worse opposition. So, why do they press on? They press on because there is one more familiar thing to this new mission that's on show here. Because the pattern is not just opposition to the message, there is fruit. There is fruit. I mean, they remember that this is why the Spirit sent them to Cyprus, not just to get a hard time from some jumped-up magician, but to see spiritual fruit as people come to faith. And in a striking way here, we see that even strident opposition to the gospel will not stand in the way of God fulfilling His mission. The Spirit who sent them out is in Paul as he directly deals with this magician. You see that in verse 9? Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, he is then able to speak directly to Elymas. And I'm sure we all sat up when that was read. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord's? We must not think that this is Paul simply losing his temper and zapping Elymas. Not at all. This is Paul declaring the Word of God to Elymas, making it clear to him where he stands before God and where this road that he is on will end. And what a mercy it is. He is struck blind for a time. Now, verse 11, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Just as Paul himself was struck blind for a time, an opportunity to see in that blindness his true condition before God. This opposition moved out of the way. The Holy Spirit is still working, but this time in the proconsul's heart to bring him to faith. Verse 12, then the proconsul believed 
when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Uh, his overwhelming astonishment was not at this miraculous blindness that came upon the magician. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord, the teaching of the Lord Jesus. It is the Word of God that is powerful to save people. The Holy Spirit creates faith in people as they respond to the Word of God, to the good news about Jesus. And surely that's what kept them going. For every 10 magicians that would oppose them, they would go through it all to see one Sergius Paulus come to faith. For the church in Antioch, it all started local. The church in that place was built up as the gospel was proclaimed. And that's where it starts for all of us. We have a local mission next month. There we, we were looking to the Lord to see Him bless. But then they looked around, and they knew that Cyprus lay across the water. And having some folks who were from Cyprus in their church, they thought, how can we reach them with the gospel? How can we get the gospel into Cyprus? Whose responsibility did the church in Antioch think it was to reach the island of Cyprus? Do we read of them saying, well, maybe the church in Jerusalem will do something? Well, if God wants to save the people of Cyprus, He'll do it without our help. No, not at all. They understood, and especially as they drew near to God and listened to God, that it was their responsibility. And praise be, it was their desire to do gospel work there. And in fact, as you read through the rest of the book of Acts, you find that the more that they went in for the mission of God, the more ambitious they became. The second missionary trip and the third missionary trip get bigger and bigger still. They were a church who would not sit still. So I close by asking, are we sitting still? I mean, is that our ambition to be able to sit still? We sit still only to hear what the Lord would have us do. But we must never rest content with where we are. And it starts local, our season of mission coming up. But then we see our responsibility is bigger than that. We look up the D-side corridor. I wonder if you've ever thought about this. Whose responsibility is it to see gospel work established in Kincardine O'Neill, in Aboyne? in Ballater, in Braemar, in Torfins, in Lumfannon. Whose responsibility is it? Well, maybe the church in Aberdeen will do something. Well, if the Lord wants to reach those people, He'll do it without us. Not at all. Not at all. He's placed us here that we might embrace His mission. Are we drawing near to the Lord, listening to His voice, seeking Him for this desperate need of gospel workers to do that, of gospel resources to spread His good news? Praying that we would never be a church willing to sit still, but ever eager to see the gospel advance in the power of the Spirit. And the mission grows even bigger than that. It's that mindset that drives us to look beyond, to support our brother in Ukraine, to support work in Malawi, in Guatemala, in India. The mission goes on. The gospel is proclaimed. Opposition is real and painful, but 
Praise be, God gives fruit. And let's seek him that he might do that more and more. Amen. Thank you for being with us today. Please do stay for lunch if you're able. You'd be very welcome. And I'll be hanging about down here for a while. If anyone would like prayer or to speak about anything we've mentioned today, please do come and speak to me.